Welcome to the Composer Studio Podcast. I'm Anna Linville. And I'm Tarek Iridella. Today our guest composer is Annie Nakunin. Annie is a New York City-based composer, flutist, dancer, choreographer, sound artist, and radio broadcaster, whose work ranges from concert music and field recordings to dance and film. Annie was the recipient of the Charles S. Miller Award, as well as the Boris and Ida Rappaport Prize, both for distinction in music composition at Columbia University. And she was recently selected to participate in the International Contemporary Ensemble's prestigious summer festival, Ensemble Evolution. She is currently pursuing a Master's in Music and Composition at NYU. Annie, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show today. Thank you so much for being here. Um, Anna and I have had a great time listening to your music and getting to know more about you this week. And it was just a pleasure to have you on the show this week. Oh, thank you so much. And thank you for having me. So happy to be here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So you're studying and working in New York and um, at NYU. Are you living downtown currently? I'm actually not. I I thought about maybe eventually moving down there because the more I'm down there, I just love being in the village and I've always loved that area. But as of now, I'm living up in Harlem because I went to Columbia for my undergraduate studies. So I kind of just continued living here after that. Oh, really cool. Really cool. So you make the commute then all the way down to NYU? I do. I've tried a couple different routes, uh, (laughs) but lately I've been just taking the Christopher Sheridan one all the way down. I'm not someone who likes to transfer, so I just like riding all the way down. Mm -hmm. I don't blame you. Well, that's (laughs) awesome. So you're still affiliated a little bit. You're still working, um, doing a radio show at Columbia, right? Yeah. So I'm actually, as of now, I'm on a little bit of a hiatus. Um, Mm -hmm. But yeah, so I had a lot of involvement at WKCR throughout undergrad and then um, especially throughout COVID too. Um, I was doing these virtual pre-recorded shows because no one could go in the station. Um, so yeah, I, I kind of ended with, um, at least for now, a, a series with some some of the Columbia DMA composers that I did throughout last summer. And um, I definitely hope to pick it up again soon, but with everything else going on, it was a little bit tricky to fit that yeah (laughs) especially a (laughs) weekly show it's tough yeah there's a lot there's a lot that goes into it absolutely and especially with the pre-recorded version Mm -hmm. it would be the kind of thing where I'd you know interview somebody or get my music together and you have to edit it in the DAW and it's a whole process Mm -hmm. as opposed to being in the studio live and it's like whatever happens happens you know it's a little bit easier (laughs) (laughs) yeah exactly So how did you um, come upon Composer Studio? Because you you reached out to us um, as a listener. Yes. So actually, I've been I've been a fan for a while. I've loved listening to all the different guests you've had. And um, I've been a fan personally of a lot of the guests that you've had. Um, and I was talking with uh, Douglas Boyce a little while ago. And um, and I saw he was a guest on it. And so I was like, oh, and I, I listened to his um, his segment. And I thought it was just so interesting. And I thought, oh, that would be so cool to, <laughs> to talk with you. <laughs> well, we're very excited that you reached out to us. And um, we've never had a composer like you on the show, um, someone who's also a dancer. And uh, I mean, we have, we've had multi-instrumentalists before, but I don't think we've had a composer who's a dancer before. So this is going to be really, really fascinating. Um, I'm sure we're going to learn a whole lot. 
<laughs> I am happy to share anything and everything. Yeah. So, you know, with dance, uh, I'm sure that there's a little bit of a paradigm shift for you in, in terms of your perspective of music and of composition. So I'm just curious, your relationship with physical movement, having danced to pieces in the past and now composing pieces as well, how has dance and the marriage to composition affected your way of thinking? How has it changed the way that you compose? I'd say it's really significantly impacted both sides of it. Like the movement side impacts the sound side and vice versa. Um, I think it's it's interesting because I started, I actually started dancing first before I entered, you know, playing flute and then composing was later in high school. Um, but so I always was just thought in movement. That's something that I, I always had um, an affinity for. So um, as, you know, as time went on and as I got into um, my college years, I really started seeing the parallels between the two when I started choreographing because I started choreographing more in college as opposed to before that. I was more just dancing. Um, and so seeing the creative side of choreographing and then composing um, I saw so many parallels between them and I thought, why are they such separate things? You know, like the, the dance world and the music world are kind of not, they don't overlap as much as you think they would. And, um, you know, I'm in both of them. And so I see, you know, there's kind of a barrier of the languages between these two mediums. And so knowing uh, both sides of it, it's really fascinating kind of seeing how you know, everyone says like dancers could say something and it could be like a similar word to something that a musician would say, but it could mean a totally different thing. And so mm. knowing those two sides has been very um, interesting for me and kind of working to build a bridge between those two worlds and those two languages. Um, and so, yeah, I'd say choreographing, I mean, is a huge part of my compositional process. And then, you know, always again, vice versa. Um, I'd say I always start, you know, I'm a huge improviser, so I love moving to either silence or just a piece that's been stuck in my head and that I, I kind of have been attached to for whatever reason. And sometimes I create other pieces to different music off of like something, another sound I was moving to. Um, and I find just the physicality and sound is something I'm really fascinated with. And I've been exploring a lot lately, um, almost creating this dance space or movement space in a sonic world. Um, and that, that can be really sort of meta to think about. Um, but it's, it's really something I, I love to dive into. So you talk about, you know, dancing and composition and, and you're usually alone, right? You're by yourself in moments like that. You're, you're sitting at your desk and you're writing. And I, I picture you saying, all right, how does this line up with a particular motion or movement that you would do? And the same way someone may, a composer may think of how do, how would a fiddle player play this? You're thinking, okay, here's a motion. How do, what would this sound like? Anonymity, you know, your first piece um, speaks to this. Your titles are very poetic, and and I've got to imagine that there's something really connective to your titles and the meaning behind them. So I'm sure that there's something with that. The first piece we're going to listen to in a moment is called "The Love of Being Lost in Anonymity." And I was wondering if you could talk about the piece and talk about, in this sense, what anonymity means for you. Absolutely. So yeah, the you're right. It's funny you mentioned with the titles. Titles are a huge thing for me. And I actually, 
you know, composers work so differently where sometimes I know people who kind of don't care as much about titles or come up with them at the last minute versus, you know, I always have to start with a title because to me, it's like, what am I writing about? Like, I need to know what colors, what emotions I'm trying to capture. And so it's um, very important to me to have that kind of initial framework to then um, work from. And so uh, I even have like a Google Doc of like 5 million titles that are all like slightly altered with like different, you know, like words in different places. So um, with with this one, The Love of Being Lost in Anonymity, for some reason, um, so Black Box, I, I wrote this for, which is the ensemble I'm part of and I'm the flutist in. And so it was a very intimate experience because I know these people so well. They're like a second family for me. And um, getting to write for people who you play with um, is a really like very, very intimate experience. And um, there's nothing like it really. So I was really excited about this. And my um, the artistic director of the ensemble, who's such a dear friend of mine, Leonard Bopp, uh, he came to me about this piece in um, summer 2020. We were initially supposed to be kind of conceiving of it at that point. And um, I remember he said to me, I want you to do like a dream piece, like something you just have always wanted to do, always wanted to explore, like all the options are open. And so we were supposed to go to Avalok Farm, which is a music residency up in New Hampshire, in Bosco, New Hampshire, uh, in summer 2020. But of course, because of COVID, everything got postponed. So we reapplied. And this past summer, we got the residency again, and so that was just such a special week. I was the composer in residence with my other friend who's a composer, Paul Novak. Um, and it was it was just great. We were in this um, little kind of bubble of a place and it was so special getting to workshop as much as we did. And I think, you know, as a composer and a choreographer, like I know that especially in New York, you know, there's people are always like doing a million different things. So, you know, to get that amount of rehearsal time and was just like such a unique, rare thing. So I'm like, I really want to take advantage of this. So every day I would come up with um, different like movement prompts for them. I thought, okay, like this is going to be the piece where like my movement side and my sonic side really coalesce. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I, yeah, we would do these like movement exercises and I really wanted a lot to come from them in terms of, you know, bouncing ideas off of them and they're all excellent improvisers. So I thought, okay, like this is the piece to really showcase their improvisatory skills. And I, you know, since I love to improvise too, um, and they just are so good at taking something and running with it. So I, I gave them so many different kind of emotional memory prompts and um, different configurations. That's as if you watch the video of the piece, um, that's a major part of the the whole thing is um, in the different movements, the ensemble moves in different configurations, which kind of affects the um, the quote unquote like intimacy of their um, placement. And so it kind of impacts the sound. Um, so with that, we kind of were workshopping all these different um, possibilities and it was so exciting. And I remember just thinking like, this is such a, this is such an amazing opportunity. Um, and that was, it was special for so many reasons. I, I met my partner during that residency. So there was kind of like that attached to it. And so, um, yeah, a lot is, I, I think about when, when I wrote this piece and this is actually, it was, it was my longest piece I've ever written. Um, it's about a half hour. And, uh, I think, you know, in, structuring it, that was a big challenge because it's like, you know, you think, okay, this is going to be this ginormous piece. 
um, and there are these multi-movements, um, but, you know, it's like improvisatory in some ways, notated in other ways. So it's like a big mix in terms of like how it feels like an open feel versus something a little bit more fixed. Um, and there's about every single side of me in there, like the radio broadcaster side of me with the voice memo diary entry parts of it that are like the interludes between the movements. Um, and so things kind of started coming into shape after uh, that week in, in New Hampshire. Um, that was kind of like the initial experimenting phase. And then um, at NYU, that's when I started at NYU and I was studying with Michael Gordon um, this past fall. And so he was a really um, key person in helping me kind of think about how to structure it and um, encouraging me to kind of take certain risks and um yeah, he was really instrumental in how I thought about like the fi- what the final product, quote unquote, of that piece was. And um, thinking about what it started with, like, I remember I took, I think it was like a little Instagram video when I was like at the piano and I kind of just had a riff in my head and I wrote the text as well um, that the the singer sings. And um, I remember we'd, we'd have these little improvisatory sessions and I sat with the singer and I, I said to her, you know, why don't you just like sing anything with this text. Like I'll be comping beneath you on the piano and you just kind of sing whatever you'd like. And she had never done something like that before, but she, of course, you know, being part of this amazing group, um, she's like open up for anything. So, uh, and I remember she was so moved by it and I was so moved by it. It was kind of this mutually really, um, amazing thing to kind of like be creating this together. And so that was ultimately the whole trajectory of this, of this piece where I had these kind of improvisatory cells and I wanted to see what they did with it. Um, and the sound kind of like birthed from it. (laughs) That was, uh, really, um, emotional for all of us. So, um, yeah, it was, it was a really magical experience. And I think, um, we're actually planning on doing a second iteration of it, this summer, um, in something I can't necessarily announce yet, but, um, it's going to be kind of another iteration involving audience participation as well. That kind of plays a key role in the final movement, which you'll hear in the excerpt, um, when the ensemble just goes into speaking text, uh, above or beneath me and the singer singing one of the parts. So it's almost like Mm. the, um, yeah, that that's that kind of plays into the whole anonymity theme. So, going back full circle to the title, um, the love of being lost in anonymity. Uh, that, in terms of like the anonymity, I think, especially living in New York, um, I always am very hyper aware of this idea where you know you're walking on the street, you interface with millions of people every day. Um, and just thinking of the thing, like why certain people enter our lives, why some are more significant than others, um, you know, like, is there some greater reason for that? Um, why we have certain run-ins with people um, and just every single person on the, in this like sea of people has a very individual story, unique story. Um, and we can't even process that, you know, cause we're so in our own lives and, you know, the energy of New York, just like everyone's on their own path and doing their own thing. Um, but just taking a moment to realize like everyone has their own completely own world that they're completely engrossed in. And, um, I actually had an interaction. This was after the residency. I had an interaction with a woman in a flower shop 
And I thought to myself, after I had this interaction, I was like, oh, this has to be part of the piece somehow, because it was almost too weird. It was one of these things where I went in, I love to get flowers. That's like being a florist is almost like my side hobby. Um, And so I went in to pick out some flowers on the Upper West Side. And um, this woman walks in and she seems kind of like a little bit... um, like restless, like she's kind of like walking around a lot. And eventually we get into talking and she seems like a lot more open than usually like people I feel like, you know, are usually very kind of, you know, tunnel vision, like just doing their own thing. That's like the the New Yorkian way. Um, but she was like very much like kind of wanted to talk to somebody. And so I felt like, okay, she seems like she needs to, you know, kind of talk to anybody. And so, um, she eventually it came out, you know, we were talking about our lives and our, our fields. She was in the arts at one point. And so I was like, Oh, okay. Like there's, you know, we had some connections and, um, she had told me she's, she was going in for, um, chemo because she had cancer. And so I, it, it was really just very impactful talking with her. And she just had this perspective that was really, um, refreshing. And it's, it was like one of those things that kind of gave you a wake up call, like, wow, like I'm, you know, like worried about all these little things. And here is this woman who, um, you know, she even said to me, I remember I say this in the piece where she said like, stay strong. And I thought, oh my gosh, like you're telling me to do that. And like, I, I mean, she's, she was an incredible person, um, just in that little brief moment of meeting her. And, um, we were talking about just like mundane things, like, you know, how flowers brighten everything and, um, you know, little things like that. But then these like really deep things about, you know, like her illness and, um, just how like a conversation can go so quickly between those two things. So yeah, long story, but <laughs> that was, that was kind of the, the background behind the piece. Hmm. Well, let's go ahead and take a listen to the piece. This is The Love of Being Lost in Anonymity by Annie Nikunin, performed by Black Box Ensemble.
My freshman year of college, I saw a man waiting for someone on the steps of St. John the Divine, holding a bouquet of flowers strikingly polychromatic against the neutral limestone. I stopped and thought to myself, there's always a story behind someone carrying flowers. And ever since, whenever I see someone doing just that, I think that thought verbatim and wonder what that story might be, where they're taking them, who they're for, for themselves, for someone else. If the latter, what stage of relationship? Something brand new, full of possibilities, something so deeply ingrained in their life for years, a date, a partner, a family member, a friend, a loved one lost, just cause or for something special, to be put in a vase, left on a doorstep, laid on a grave. With Wanda, she surfaced from the sea of white noise and let me into her story. What led her to be standing there with me on a Monday fall evening, getting flowers, seeing the person behind the passersby. I only wish I knew what kind of flowers she got. An everyday motion or a glacial pause.
That was really cool. <laughs> Thank you. You know, it's funny because I was just thinking in a way, it's not like it's not like you were lost in anonymity. It's almost like being found in anonymity. That moment that you had, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's so true. And being seen yeah. in anonymity and somehow seeing someone. It's just, it was really lovely. The whole ocean of people that. really comes, mm -hmm. it comes to the forefront at the end. You know, you realize, mm -hmm. oh, this is one conversation among thousands of conversations that are being had. Maybe two people who are running into each other for the first time and the last time, um, having these just spur of the moment conversations. Um, you don't have to answer this if you don't want to, but I'm curious, did you stay in touch with Wanda and do you know what the status was or what what became of everything? Honestly, I I wish I did. And I, I wish I um, asked for her contact information. For some reason, I, I was like, oh, like it, it almost like happened. And then later I thought, oh my gosh, like I would have invited her to the concert, <laughs> you know. Um, but yeah, I, I really wish I did. And I thought about um, actually asking the florist almost like, does, does she come in here or something? <laughs> like I'd love mm -hmm. to I'd love to know, um, yeah, what came to be of her, but mm -hmm. maybe, maybe eventually. I just want to mention, you know, Mozart's Requiem, the very beginning of Mozart's Requiem, it's like someone breathing. You have the umpa, the slow umpas before the big climactic moment, just as the choir comes in. And I've always regarded that as breathing. And then there's the last gasp before, you know, the Requiem really begins. And your piece, Our Breaths in Partnered Sleep, and just thinking about how human breathing is and how, like in partnered sleep, you know, how much of a connection there is. My daughter rides horses and apparently, I've learned, she told me, that when you're around horses, your breaths become in sync to the horses, as does your heartbeat. Now, I don't know exactly about the heart because they're a much larger animal, but. Um. I didn't know that. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. I believe it. I would believe it. Um, definitely about the breaths for sure. And so I, I just think it's astonishing to me um, how in tune so much of our world is, you know, with nature and us with each other. And go ahead and, and tell us a little bit about this piece, Our Breaths in Partnered Sleep. Yeah, so it's it's funny actually. You mentioned Mozart's Requiem too, because I actually sang that in Switzerland. So I, I have a also an emotional kind of connection to that piece. Um, but yeah, so this piece, our breast and partnered sleep, actually was it all stemmed from a 2 a.m. idea, which is usually the ideas I end up following through with. It's almost like just a raw kind of like thought that I'm, I'm sort of just thinking about over and over. And then I write it in my phone notes and I like flesh it out over like a week or something. So basically what, what happened was, um, I, I was set to make a piece with my collaborator, Camilla Caldwell, who is a fantastic violinist. And, um, we had already collaborated on another piece, um, a little over a year ago, and so she asked me if I wanted to write something for her for um, Sick Puppy, the, the festival. And of course, I was like, absolutely no question. So every collaboration with her is always um, 
I mean, throughout all of my pieces, as you could see, probably in this roster of pieces as well, my collaborators are a key sort of thing in all of these pieces and um, they're key facets of what the piece becomes. Um, I love collaborating with other artists and putting our heads together because I feel like just so, so much amazing, so many amazing things come from that. Um, so I, I had this idea where I remember I was just lying in bed one night um, and I thought I was like staring at the ceiling. And for some reason I had this vision of an aerial view, like kind of, I was working with film a lot at that point. I still do. Um, but so I kind of, I, I think of a lot of things from like almost a dance film perspective. So I thought of this aerial view uh, and I like of me kind of tossing and turning and the idea of absence, like the absence of someone there or well, the presence of someone there versus the absence of someone, you know, next to you, almost like a space that, you know, cause with a bed, usually there's like two pillows. So it's like, if you're just on one side and, you know, the absence of that other space, I was thinking a lot about that and, um, filling that and over time, like how that changes. And so I pitched this idea to Camilla and I said, you know, I, I'm seeing like a dance film with this, um, and something with, you know, like we always would work with um, pedals. She has a ton of like really cool pedals, like distortion and looping. And she's also a fabulous improviser. So we explore a lot of that together. And we always joke, I love to make like an orchestra out of her one, her <laughs> one instrument. Uh, and so for better or for worse. And um, so she, I remember I pitched the idea to her and she actually was on board with even being a part of the movement. And she's like, Oh, well, like I can move in it too. And I'm like, I mean, that would be amazing. And so I thought to myself, it's, it's so much better than having just kind of two random dancers in it because as me as the composer, her as the, the performer, it's like the two most intimate roles, you know, like kind of speaking to each other and then we're the, the movers as well. So I thought that added a really cool layer to it. So I remember it was like one of these things in the summer, we, we rented out Alchemical Studios, uh, a room downtown. Um, and it's like kind of this white box studio. And I thought this is kind of the best space to get some of this footage. And I created, um, I choreographed it in the sense that I created kind of these suggested movement patterns and threads. So I, I said to her, like, you know, do what you do when you're sleeping. Like what are movements associated with sleep, tossing and turning, getting up and lying back down, kind of like doing these things like with your arms and your hands and, you know, like kind of putting your hands in your hair or something, you know, like these very kind of intuitive quotidian things. And so once she kind of got in that mindset, she really ran with it. And I, I loved what we both did. And we kind of watched each other and got ideas. And it was one of these things. I wish someone had a camera like apart from the actual film, because we'd be like one of us above each other, kind of circling and sort of like doing these things with tripods. It was such a crazy process. Um, and we both kind of wore just a really simple like I pictured like a black almost like what you'd sleep in or something and our hair down and bed heady. Like that was kind of the, we had fun with that aspect of it. Um, and yeah, we just kind of took a bunch of different frames of, you know, us, like it's kind of the two perspectives. So like Camilla's story and my story with that, like, and kind of tossing and turning between the two sides of the bed and almost like suggesting there's an absence of something there. Um, and over time how that shifts and, um, so eventually, you know, we even it's we kind of play a lot with this delay effect, uh, Camilla and I. And so one of the things was um, 
we sort of, she did a lot of the video editing and we collaborated on what we, we envisioned with that. And often it would be like our bodies almost like it, it works so well with the time aspect of the piece because like my body, let's say would be on the other side and then it would move. And then my, like the ghost of my other body would still be there. So it, it really Mm -hmm. very, um, it, it represented the whole idea of the piece. That's really, really well. fascinating. Where can we actually watch these videos uh, or where can the listeners find these videos? Oh, yes. Yeah. So if you go on my Vimeo page, just Annie Nikunin, um Vimeo, you can you can find that. It's also on my social media pages as well. You can get, get to my Vimeo through there. Great. So they're all on there. So you guys will have to go check that out. Um, but right now, let's listen to Annie Nikunin's Our Breaths in Partnered Sleep performed by Annie Nikunin and Camilla Caldwell.
That was Our Breaths in Partnered Sleep by composer Annie Nakunin, who's also our guest this evening. Annie, it's it's a real joy, you know, listening to your music and hear you hear you talking about it as well. And um the again, the connection to I don't I, I want to say nature, but human behavior, I almost feel like is is what's at the core of your music. Um, I wanted to ask, you know, we had spoken earlier about you as a dancer, um, you as a choreographer. How did you get started in that? And then from there, what brought you to composition? Yeah. So in, like I said before, I, um, I started dancing before I started playing flute or composing. So I remember, um, I got into ballet, you know, like most people when you're really young, when I was four years old. And I remember my, my mom, you know, tried me in all these different sports and I hated like all of them. And then she put me in ballet and I thought, oh, I like this. I'm going to stick with this. So I, it ended up becoming a pretty serious thing for me. And I, you know, I grew up in this small town on Long Island uh, called Northport, which is on the North Shore. It's a beautiful harbor town. And I remember I have so many memories like tumbling down the hill with my mom going to ballet class on Saturday morning and my best childhood friend would would be there with me. And it was just kind of such a magical thing. And I actually taught there um, during COVID a year ago, which was a real full circle thing. I got hired as an advanced ballet teacher and a company coach. Um, and so I, I really grew up in that school. And so that molded, you know, my classical ballet technique and foundation. And that's what I grew up in. Um, and then, you know, it gets to the point you have to make the decision pretty young when you want to either go and really do it for real, like pursue it professionally or decide you're just going to you know, do anything else with it or, or not continue. And so when I was about 13, I got accepted into the Joffrey Ballet School summer intensive. And so when you're kind of at that age, like a tween, <laughs> beginning teen, um, you start to do summer intensives. And that's kind of how you get exposed to the quote unquote real world in ballet. Um, and it was, a, it was a really formative experience for me. Like you get the number that they give you on your chest and, and you audition and you're around all these other people. And um, I mean, I grew up kind of, you know, coming in and out of the city all the time because my uncle lives in the city around Lincoln Center. So I already was very um, much attached to the city. Um, but, you know, still like as a young, you know, 13 year old being in this room with all these other people. And so I, I got in and um, they offered me the opportunity to train with them as what they call a Joffrey trainee year round and um, to be eventually either part of their company or another company. Um, and that's when I really had to make the decision. I thought, okay, like this is either going to be, I go to this, um, you know, to Joffrey and, and go to some kind of not high school, you know, like some sort of thing where you don't really go to school. Like it's all, um, it's all around ballet. Like I would take classes, but you know, it would be all to be a professional ballet dancer. Um, and you know, I was so fortunate. My parents were so supportive and, you know, they said, you know, we'll back you with whatever you want to do. And, um, but it was a really hard decision for me. And ultimately I decided I didn't want to pursue ballet in that kind of quote unquote conventional way. Um, and I wanted to incorporate it into my own practice in my own way, dance movement. And so at that point though, you know, being 13, 14, 
um, I, I had to take a hiatus from it for a while um, because, you know, partially of, of the millions of reasons I decided not to pursue that um, in that traditional sense, you know, it was killing my body. Like I, mm-hmm. I remember, you know, being with the point shoes and the, my doctor saying to me, like, you should kind of take it easy. You know, like I was at a young age and already, um, you know, knock on wood, I never got an injury that was major, but I was in a lot of pain. Um, so I remember thinking, okay, I got to step back from this for a little while and reevaluate what this is in my life. So it's funny when I think about it, I mean, for four or five years, it wasn't really part of my life as much. And I actually couldn't even like go to see ballets cause I would get so upset. And I was like, I almost mm. couldn't even touch it. That had to be the kind of thing where I, I totally separated from myself, almost like after a breakup or something. Um, and then as time went on, I got into college and that's when I started revisiting it because um, I went to Barnard College within Columbia University and they have a stellar dance department. And um, I remember I I kind of was hearing about these different things going on there and I thought, oh, like I, I'm, I'm sort of interested in that. Um, and they view dance in all of these different lenses, like within that liberal arts setting. Um, so it had a lot of different, like it wasn't just, you know, professional ballet. It was, you know, modern, like, you know, all these different things you could do with it and thinking of it more of an a- in an academic lens, which I, I sort of was interested in. And so I remember I took this class dance in New York, which was the best class ever. We literally got free tickets every week <laughs> to go to a dance concert in New York. So it was everything from New York City Ballet to a salsa party at the Brooklyn Museum. Like it was so insane. So I kind of then was, it was re-entering my life and I thought, okay, like what, so what is this now? Like, what does this mean to me? And so that's when I started choreographing and um, I started exploring dance in my own way, like just kind of moving in my own amalgamation of, you know, ballet, modern, um, you know, contact improv. I became very interested in, in contact improvisation, which for those who don't know is kind of like you partner with people, but um, it's like improvisation and music, but with dance, like you're basically partnering with people or um, a group and you're sort of just feeling each other out and seeing what happens and nothing is scripted. It's just like you're, you're moving with each other in this super unpredictable way. And so um, I became super fascinated with that and the parallels with, you know, sonic improvisation. Um, And so, yeah, it became then when I was thinking about those, those parallels. And I remember it was actually um, Georg, Friedrich Haas, who I studied with in my undergraduate years at Columbia in composition, um, he's the one that really kind of gave me that push that I think I needed where I, I was, you know, he knew about my movement sound background and how I was kind of um, well-versed in both of them equally. And uh, and I remember we were sitting in a lesson and I'll never forget. He he told me like, you must do something with this. Like, I don't know what it is, but like you, you have these, you're fluent in both, which is kind of like, and he, he thought that was rare. And so he's like, you know, you must do something with this. And I, I had never had someone kind of like, give me that directive of advice. And I was like, yeah, no, you're right. Like, yes. And so <laughs> then I, I really just committed to it. I wrote my thesis on like, compositional choreographic parallels at New York City Ballet. Um, I actually, one of my main collaborators, Ron Wasserman, is the principal bassist of the New York City Ballet Orchestra. And so I kind of became um, more more part of that world. And New York City Ballet was always my favorite company growing up. So that always felt kind of like it was meant to be. 
Um, and so, yeah, it's like I, I, I collaborate now with um, a lot of different like dancers on so many levels, um, you know, like whether it be people who don't quote unquote dance in the traditional way, like I've partnered people who don't dance because um, I always find it interesting to see like what just, you know, quote unquote normal people do in like moving, mm-hmm. moving in everyday life, you know, those quotidian movements and going back to our breaths and partnered sleep. Like I, I zero in on, um, like the human behavior. Like you said, I'm so endlessly fascinated with just the simplest things in life that can mean the most. Like for example, when you're, you're, breathing sinks when you're sleeping with another person. And I always think to myself, like I have this reaction almost like, how is this not talked about more? <laughs> it's like, like it's so magical and it's so um, special. And if you get to like, you know, just these, these human things that are overlooked or not really like talked about that openly. And I'm just obsessed with dissecting it in movement and sound. Mm-hmm. Basically that's kind of the, the short of it. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, so I basically, I, you know, my collaborators range from, you know, one of them is Joelle Santiago, who's a dancer I met at Barnard. Um, and she's like interested in sound. She sings and um, is into new music. And so we've done a lot of contact improv together. And, um, you know, I love kind of exploring these movement practices with these like different mediums of sound and electronics. I'm actually, I'm, I'm doing three cl- upcoming collaborations that are, I'm really excited about that kind of involve my movement sound practice in a lot of different ways um, with three professors that I'm really excited to work with. So that's even like a further exploration of all the different um, intersections between, you know, the, the fluting, composing, dancing, mm-hmm. choreographing, and they all have different ways they want to bring that out. So I'm really excited for that. Well, the last piece we're going to listen to this evening is what kind of land will we be together in? And this piece um, was inspired by a love letter from the composer, John Cage, to his partner or wife, uh, choreographer, Merce Cunningham. Did you want to tell us a little bit about that? I mean, it's interesting that John Cage, composer, you're like, you're like, John and Merce in one person, almost <laughs> composer <laughs> and choreographer. You know, that's, it's that's interesting. A great way of putting it. Um, but this that that this composer um, so fascinated with sound, not necessarily what what people would normally think of as music, but sound itself and movement um, to be partnered with this person. Um, I, I have the the love excerpt of the love letter that um that inspired you and um Tarek if you want to read it that would be lovely since it's from John to Merce yes. I think it'd be nice yeah <laughs> so your stove came today is dark and beautiful whole place is dark because it's night now and I'm lonesome for you writing music with more impetus bunnies making many new mobiles and screens installed tomorrow, and many, many more new publicity things, etc. Great surprise, which you will see. I'm sorry your heart was sick. Maybe well now? When will you be back? What kind of land will we be together in? Need you. Yeah, it says a lot in a few words. (laughs) I think what's interesting is that it's got so many little day-to-day tidbits like, oh, this is what's happening. And then, 
and then like it's interrupted by the more serious like feelings of you know between these two people yeah exactly and I think that's yeah yeah that's what struck me so much about it because I have a whole book of of love letters between them and this one um I remember I discovered it at the beginning of COVID it was like basically almost like two years ago to the day um and yeah like that balance of just those mundane you know, everyday things that I, you know, I'm so attracted to, like that are, that are really potent, you know, at the same time. And then that interjection of those last three lines, especially it's like all of a sudden it just shifts to, you know, like you're doing all these everyday things and it's like where you, I, I think that's such a good representation of like how the mind thinks it's like, you could be just doing the, the most, you know, random thing, like, you know, I don't know, like what, what he talks about in that letter. And then it's like, you know, what kind of land will we be together in? Like need you. And it ends with that, like the, the need, mm-hmm. you know, like needing another person. And um, yeah, I was so moved by, by that. Mm-hmm. I think especially because it seems like we keep hurtling from one crisis to another and we're dealing with all these day-to-day mundane things um, and the difficulties and, and, and I don't know, strangeness and also simplicity of those things. And then, these big things keep interrupting. Um, so it's just, it's really interesting to, I don't know, that it's just very touching letter. And I can see why you'd be, why it would kind of, um, it would be meaningful to you in this moment, you know, in the last couple of years that we've had. Yeah, there's that that kind of uncertainty that rings at the end. And, mm-hmm. and you know, at the time I was actually dealing with the ending of, of another relationship. And so I remember thinking that it was like, yeah, those open ended questions, like, what does this look like? You know, what and, mm-hmm. and just that that, you know, the expression of of love and need and and just so straightforwardly, you know, like it, it's it's such a yeah, it's it's a really impactful poem or love letter. This is. Annie Nakunin's What Kind of Land Will We Be Together In? with Eleanor Sandresky and Jonathan Katz.
That was What Kind of Land Will We Be Together In, composed by our guest, Annie Nikunin, performed by Eleanor Sandresky and Jonathan Katz on piano. Annie, it's been an absolute pleasure um, having you on the show today, having the opportunity to share your music with the listeners. Um, thank you so much for thinking of us. Thank you so much for listening to the show as well and um, being a listener and being a guest. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you both so much. It was such a pleasure talking with you. Yeah. Same here. Best of luck with your upcoming projects and uh, definitely keep in touch. Sounds good. Will do. Thank you. You have been listening to the music of composer Annie McEwen on the Composer Studio. If you want to learn more about Annie and her music, you can visit her website at www.annienacuin.com. A lot of passion and cash goes into the making of Composer Studio. This show would not be possible without the support of our listeners. Thank you so much. If you would like to support our work, please visit our website at www.composerstudio.net. Before we go, we want to leave you with a little food for thought from composer John Cage. There is nothing we need to do that isn't dangerous. Thanks for listening. <laughs>